What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Sletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell? What the hell is going on is we're trying to get the schools opened and the teachers unions aren't going along. People are starting to get vaccinated. Rochelle Walensky, who is the Biden's handpicked head of the CDC, has said that it is safe to open schools and that teachers do not need to be vaccinated in order for schools to open safely, as long as you take other mitigation efforts. But the teachers unions are digging in. Democrats in Washington are digging in. There was a vote in Congress recently, a bill by Roy Blunt and Tim Scott, that said that they would deny funding to school districts that refused to open after teachers had been vaccinated and not a single Democrat voted for it. The teachers unions run the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party runs Washington. And so our kids are not going to school. So I want to ask you, uh, as someone who's focused on this more than I have, a, a little bit more about this question of teachers unions and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and students came about. But first, I think it's important to talk about the science. So, yes. you know, the mantra of this year has been, well, first, the mantra has been Donald Trump sucks. But the second mantra <laughs> of this year <laughs> has been follow the science, yep. listen to the science. So. Joe Biden is elected. He's very adamant about that. He spent last year hiding out and worrying about his own safety and security and health. I don't understand why it is that having come into office, having brought in a whole new health team, except for Dr. Fauci, a whole new health team that has suggested that students and teachers are both safe with proper mitigation efforts inside a classroom that they're resisting this. What's happened? What's going on? First, let's talk about the science. Dr. Walensky made her comments, and of course, she was brushed back by Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, saying she was speaking in her personal capacity. No, she wasn't. She's not. She was speaking as the head of the CDC during an official briefing of the White House COVID response team in a Zoom call with the CDC logo behind her. She was not speaking in her personal capacity. She was speaking in her capacity as a scientist. And A team of CDC scientists just published a review in the Journal of the American Medical Association of all the studies. There are numerous studies about the safety of opening schools, and they found, this is a quote, there has been little evidence that schools have contributed meaningfully to increased community transmission. And indeed, the CDC researchers pointed out the study of 17 Wisconsin schools found that after taking basic mitigation measures, quote, COVID-19 incidence was lower in schools than in the community. And that's backed up by data compiled by a Brown University economics professor named Emily Oster, who has started a website on this, which tracks the spread of COVID among in-person students, in-person faculty, and the general population and compares it. Last two weeks of January, the COVID case rate among students who were attending in-person school was 0.4%. And among staff was 0.88%. And in the same period, the community case rate was 10.57%. So they were actually safer in school than the broader community. So there literally is no scientific evidence to support continued school closure. The only thing that's pushing for the school closures are the teachers unions. 
And to get to the question you asked about Biden, he's basically, instead of pushing back on the teachers unions, which is what he should be doing, he's giving them a pretext by saying, well, this is why you have to pass my $1.9 trillion COVID relief package so we can get schools mitigation, you know, better ventilation and billions of $129 billion for better ventilation and other things for the teachers. All that money is going to be spent in, you know, two, three, four, five, six years from now. We got to open the schools now. We can't wait that long. So he's covering for the teachers unions rather than pushing back on him, which is what a leader should do, especially one who's promised to unify the country. One of the most important elements of this is not teachers unions, politics, Democrats, Republicans. One of the most important elements, I think, to understand is the impact that COVID and the closure of schools has had on children. You know, you have kids. I have kids. First of all, it has widened the divide between the haves and the have-nots in ways that I think are appalling, horrifying. You know, what we've seen is that people who have choices can send their kids to private school where they have hybrid options, but people who don't have choices, people who are poorer, people who are in the inner cities, minorities, they are being crushed. And what I don't get is why that is not an issue for more people. Set aside the politics, set aside the Democrats, the unions. Why is this not a national crisis? I mean, the numbers, in researching for this podcast, I have looked at 24% increase in hospitals for mental health-related visits from children aged 5 to 11. Food banks with hungry families because kids are not getting free school lunches have been absolutely hit hard. 17 million children who are in danger of not having enough to eat. And then there's the aptitude test, the base learning that you're hoping that kids are getting. One national testing organization reported that the average student in grades three through eight that took a math assessment this year fell back five to 10 points from the previous year. And Black and Hispanic students and the poor fell back even further. Why is there not an absolute uproar from parents, no matter who the hell they voted for? It's just, for me, looking at these numbers makes me want to go out and hit somebody. Well, I think there is an uproar from parents. It's just the problem is teachers unions are all about the interests of grownups, not the interests of kids, right? They're all about, like any of these public worker unions, they're all about patting the teachers rather than doing the best thing for for the kids. And look, just like I pointed out, there's no scientific evidence to support closing schools. The evidence is piling up that those school closures are doing irreparable harm to these kids. I mean, you've cited all the data on how the testing is going down. The lifetime impact on poor and minority and disabled kids is going to be irreparable. There's a new study by a group of professors from Yale, Northwestern, and the University of Pennsylvania found, and this is a quote, one year of school closures will cost ninth graders in the poorest communities a 25% decrease in their post-educational earning potential. John P. Daly, one of our colleagues here at the American Enterprise Institute, pointed out there's a McKinsey study that estimates the average student could lose between $61,000 and $82,000 in lifetime earnings solely because of these learning losses. So we are doing irreparable damage to poor and minority, I mean, all kids who are out of school, but in particularly the most disadvantaged. And as you point out, the elites can send their kids to private school. People with choices and with money can send their kids to private school. The great crime here is that 
These kids are trapped. They used to be trapped in failing public schools. Now they're trapped on Zoom and they don't have any choices. They can't get out because there's no school choice. The parents don't have any power. And so the teachers unions literally have these kids trapped on Zoom and are destroying their lives. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. Honestly, I'm speechless about the whole thing. It, I looked at some of the data about student suicide and it breaks your heart. You know, in Las Vegas, the schools have been closed and they're trying to reopen because what they've seen just in this one county, Clark County, is that over the nine months of school closure, they had 18 suicides of children because, you know, forget about the learning, forget about their earnings power. They have no network. They have no safety net. These kids are, uh, if they're lucky, they're on Zoom. Most of them are not even on Zoom. And imagine the feeling of isolation and loneliness that would drive a child to kill themselves. It's yeah. How can anybody argue that the opposite is true? I, I, I don't get it. And I don't get why it is that there is not a national furor about this. You know, you say it's the teachers unions. I'm sorry. People still are able to pick up their newspapers and learn the facts that we've just been talking about. Well, I'll tell you what. The only way we're going to solve this is if our political leaders step up and take a leadership role. And quite frankly, we have one of those leaders who's doing that with us here today. So we're lucky to be joined by Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa. And the reason we asked her to join us today is because she has pushed through legislation that is forcing all Iowa schools to offer in-school options to all of the students of the state. Governor Reynolds assumed office in 2017. Before that, she was the lieutenant governor of Iowa. She's been a member of the Iowa Senate. She's also a mom and a grandmother and a parent of teachers. So she is deeply immersed in both the politics, personal and state level of this issue. We're really lucky to have her. Well, governor, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's, I'm happy to be here. Good. We're happy to have you. So you just signed a law into place requiring Iowa schools to give parents the option to send their kids to school five days a week. Uh, tell me, one, why you did that and how it's going. Well, first of all, I want to give a shout out. The vast majority of our school districts across the state have had their kids in the classroom uh, safely and responsibly since August. Even through kind of our brief surge that we saw in November, the vast majority were able to still be in the classroom safely and responsibly. But what we found in our largest school districts across the state, we had the teachers unions that were winning out and we had kids that hadn't been in the classroom since August. Finally, we did listening sessions with parents um, and students and educators all across the state of Iowa. So it was really driven from the grassroots. They organized, they got on a website, they communicated, coordinated. And I just, the stories that I heard were heartbreaking and just unconscionable, to be quite honest. There was no rigor in the online classes. The students made the reasonings for why they should be in the classroom. They were safer there. We had teachers that had been unable to connect with students for over nine weeks, and there was nothing that they could do about it. The lessons for the day ranged from 60 minutes 
to 90 minutes and they were done. And again, they said, even if they were on a hybrid and in the classroom, the teachers weren't in the classroom. So they were in the classroom looking at a screen and you know, kids were falling behind. We had 55% in one of our public schools of high school kids and 21% middle school kids that were getting a D or an F. In the fall, we saw 21% decrease in first grade literacy. We just had doctors come out that have data to show that we've had an increase in suicidal thoughts among our young kids. And I just said, enough is enough. The metrics support the kids being in school. We can do it safely. We have our own data, the science supports it. And so at the condition of the state, I said, I wanna bill on my desk in the next week to two weeks that gives parents the options to be in the classroom 100% of the time, Monday through Friday, as well as going 100% online. Governor, first of all, kudos. As a parent, I just wish more governors sounded like you. Not because I want kids to be unsafe or teachers to be unsafe or anybody who works in schools, but because in-school learning is absolutely imperative, but not just for the education, you know, for the socialization, even for the school lunches. So tell me something. I'm looking at the bill that passed in Iowa, and I was interested to see that it passed the Senate by 29 to 18 and the House by 59 to 39. Okay, those guys are seeing the same data that you're talking about. They live in the same state and they care about the same families and education that you care about. Who are those 18 in the Senate and those 39 in the House who thought this was a bad idea and why? Party lines, and it should not be. This is not a partisan issue. And a lot of those legislators, a lot of our rural legislators tend to be Republican. A lot of your larger city legislators tend to uh, run Democratic. Not so much. We actually picked up seats in the suburbs based on this issue alone because parents were so frustrated. I had moms stepping out of the workforce. I had moms telling me I'm failing as a mother, a spouse, and an employee. You know, I'm trying to do everything and I can't. I have 11 grandchildren. I have a daughter who's a public school teacher. I have two other daughters with four children each that said, mom, I didn't go into education because I'm not cut out to be an educator. My kids need to be in the classroom. So it just, it it came down to party lines, which it absolutely should not have. They were more beholden to the teacher union. This is another thing that just, I still cannot get past this. And it was verified at a public school board meeting. We had teachers in one of our larger metropolitan areas, Des Moines, um, that actually took a vote not to be considered essential workers, not to be considered essential workers. So it was brought up on the school board meeting that was open to the public. I was listening. I just could not. I said, get a copy of that. I could not believe I was hearing what I was hearing. And they said, well, they're essential. And we're saying, you know, parents are saying, you know, they're teaching our children that they're essential workers. And they were like, no, no, no. They took a vote not to be considered essential. But yet in every other word, they need more money to do their job. You know, they weren't putting the students first. All of the data supported that we could do this safely and responsibly. There was not spread in the classrooms. It was happening outside of the school building. And we just have a ton of data to support that. And so finally, you know, they're back in and we're moving through and we provided PPE. We moved them up on vaccination list, you know, just to just to make sure that we could take everything off the table and everybody felt comfortable being back in the classroom. Well, how have the teachers unions responded to what you're doing? I know Governor Scott Walker very well, and he, boy, did he have a big fight with the teachers unions in his state. And the way he solved the problem was to get rid of collective bargaining for teachers in his state, except for salary. How did you get around the teachers unions and their collective bargaining powers? Oh, you did? We did that a couple years ago. We took Scott's lead. 
So I was Lieutenant Governor at the time. And we actually had got, he video conferenced in to kind of, you know, encourage our legislators to move forward with that, except for salaries. And then it's tied to, you know, a certain percentage increase. But we were able to do that, you know, and at the time they thought education would be just abolished, that, that it was going to fail and it was going to completely end and, and our children weren't going to be taken care of. And, you know, that's not the case. We've moved through all of that. But still, in some of our uh, larger school districts, you know, they still have quite a handle on the school board. That's, Mark, that's the other thing I think that we need to talk about. And it's going to change because I now have parents that never, ever, ever thought that they would run for office that are now gathering signatures because we just, we weren't paying attention to local races. And I think now we know how important school boards and city elections, city councils are as we look back and reflect on how different states and communities moved through the pandemic. How important was the collective bargaining reform to your ability to do this? Because one of the things Scott told me, he said, if Mayor Lightfoot had Act 10 in Illinois, she'd just be able to tell the teachers unions you're going back to, the teachers are going back to work, you know, done. Yeah, Yeah. well, exactly. You know, we passed the legislation and we moved forward because we could and you can't. Governor, in a year in which we have been talking so much about opportunity and diversity and inclusion and about the plight of underprivileged communities in our country, one of the things that really stood out to me is the impact of school closures on Black and Hispanic communities and you know how these kids are falling further behind and that there's even a greater disparity between Blacks and whites and other communities now during the pandemic. How are you trying to address that? Because what I was reading about Iowa is that there's a lot of doubt in the inner cities about the wisdom of opening schools. How are you trying to handle that process? Well, I mean, to your point, that is exactly the population that has been left behind. And so we have been going into those communities and talking about options. So not only, you know, when I talk about teachers not being able to connect with students for over nine weeks, that's our inner city public school system. You know, that was a problem. We have single moms who have had to figure out if they can still pay for rent. They had to quit their job and then trying to just educate their children. So that gap is continuing to grow. But that's one of the reasons not only did I do the 100% option for parents to have them in school. School, but I'm also working on legislation that's called the Students First Act. And that's the piece of legislation that provides open enrollment for every single school district. We have some school districts that that, that doesn't apply to, so that removes barriers and restrictions, and that's public to public. More flexibility in creating charter schools for kids that need alternatives. And then the Students First Scholarship, which helps parents that have children in a failing school that just because they don't have the financial means, they shouldn't be prohibited from providing a better option or a better education for their children. So, you know, that's part of what we're working on as we look back and see who's been impacted. We need to empower those families and we need to give them the options that people that have the financial means have. And it's about educating them and it's about knowing what those options look like. We've actually taken a team of my various agencies and we've gone into a church in kind of one of our school districts that had been closed or did a hybrid for 11 months and just helped to bring all of the resources that were available and to help educate them on the options and what we're working on. And they want the very best for their kids too. They don't even know how to maneuver through the system or that they have options. So again, it's about educating 
and about empowering and about making sure that they know that there are options for them. Yeah, you you said, I think, in your state of the state address, or I guess condition of the state, you call it in Iowa. So one parent you talked to said a school administrator actually recommended she buy a house in a neighboring school district if she wanted her kid to go to in-person school. Yeah, I wanted to be sure and tell you that because I just, it was on one of the Zoom meetings that we had. I mean, I... The, the school boards were bullying parents, literally bullying. I had parents tell me they were afraid to go to the meetings. They weren't allowed to ask questions. They weren't given answers. Every time they would give them a metric to hit to bring the kids back into the classroom, they would move it. They wouldn't base it on state data. And this parent was a professor at Iowa State, and she was teaching in the classroom. She offered assistance in kind of walking through the mitigation efforts that they put in place and why you can do it safely and responsibly. They told her, no, they don't need her help. She was volunteering it. And then they said, you know, if you want your child to be in the classroom, then you just go buy a house in the uh, neighboring district. Now, how just unconscionable is that? These are taxpayer dollars. We're paying for this system. And then these parents are being treated this way. I wanted to ask you about testing. So one of the things that really lays bare the impact of schools being closed and children being denied in-person education is a drop in testing scores across the country. And obviously, there are communities in need that are being impacted even more. One of the responses that I'm seeing here in my home state of Virginia is that schools are pushing against that testing. In other words, they're not worried that the kids are doing badly. They're worried that people are- It's going to be reflected on them. Exactly. And so I just saw the University of Virginia, which is one of our state schools, is now not going to require either the SAT or the ACT for the next two years. You've kind of taken an opposite tack. Tell us a little bit about your thinking. Yeah, I think we'll be one of the few uh, states that are actually moving forward with the assessments. And I think it's imperative that we do that. So we have some understanding of the impact on our children and that we know where they're at, where we need to start the remediation efforts, what we need to focus on and how, you know, from a funding perspective, what does that look like too, to make sure that we have the resources to get these children not only caught up, but able to move forward a 21% decrease. And we had the majority of our schools open. That is significant in first grade literacy. Think how that impacts a child moving forward. If they're not reading by third grade, then they pay for that through the rest of their educational experience and beyond. And so the other thing that I found very concerning when I was doing the listening sessions is that a lot of the schools, they weren't doing final exams. They were just doing chapter exams because they knew that the kids couldn't pass a comprehensive final exam based on the amount of time that they were teaching the courses. So they're just, you know, they're watering down everything. They're not holding themselves accountable by not doing the final exam, by not doing the assessment, by not actually, you know, seeing where the children are at and how they move forward with that. That's a question for me. How do you see this playing out nationally now? People in the next coming months are going to get vaccinated. Kids are going to start going back to school in the fall in all likelihood. We're going to get to some semblance of normal. How is this a teaching moment that we can move forward on? I mean, how do we galvanize this to really push for breaking the power of the teachers unions and pushing for real education reform, like real school choice? Like if they, I, mean, I, just, I just find it unconscionable that teachers refuse to teach, but also refuse to give the parents the money so they can take their kids to schools that do want to teach. 
Like right. how, do we move, how do we use this to, as a moment to, to move education reform if, forward? If we don't take advantage of this moment and the data that we have been handed and the data that we're going to see moving forward, then shame on us. We need to turn this over to parents. We need to give parents control of their children's education, bottom line. And to your point, how can you say, I'm not going into the school district. I refuse to teach your children, even though all of the data and the science supports that we can do this safely and responsibly, yet we're not going to give you the option to move your child to another alternative. That's ridiculous. And our story is the same as other states. Our private school systems have been up and going since day one, and they have done it safely and responsibly. So, I mean, that's why we're going bold. We're going in. That's why we're doing the Students First Act. And I hope other states will follow suit. Um, I'm working on the House. I've got some work to do there. It passed through the Iowa State Senate with Republican support, of course. Um, so we're, we're hoping we can get it through the House and then really be an example for other states to follow. But I know other Republican governors are also uh, looking at that as well. They like to tell me, you know, oh, it's local control. It's local control. You should, you know, that's that's what this state is built on. And my definition of local control is parental control. I think parental control is the very definition of local control. And that kind of sets them back for a little bit. That's hard to argue with, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking as a parent, amen. Amen. Well, Mark, Mark asked exactly the question about national efforts that I was going to ask you. And so I'm just, it leaves it to me to, to thank you. Thank you so much for, for what you're doing, for your leadership on these issues, and for taking a little time to chat with us. Good luck. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for helping raise awareness. I appreciate it. Thanks for what thank you're doing. You, Take care. So thank God we've got leaders like Governor Reynolds who are taking a no hold barred approach to this and forcing the recalcitrant teachers unions to finally do their jobs and teach our kids. I wish more governors would do the same thing. And it's interesting that the reason she's able to do it is because, you know, you remember I wrote a book with Scott Walker years ago called Unintimidated about his fight to pass Act 10 in Wisconsin, which was a bill that eliminated collective bargaining for public workers, including teachers for everything except pay. And Iowa took the model that Scott passed in Wisconsin and applied it in Iowa. And that is what has made the teachers unions powerless to stop what she's doing right now. I was talking to Scott about this a few weeks ago when uh, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago, who basically is her heart's in the right place. She wants to force teachers unions to go back into the classroom, but she can't because they have collective bargaining power and she has to negotiate with them. And one of the things Scott said to me is like, if she had Act 10, she would just she could just order them in, be done. There's two lessons I think we take out of this is one, we need school choice. We need to put the power back in the hands of parents and away from the teachers unions. And two, we need to reform collective bargaining. There is no reason that the teachers union should have the power to keep their teachers out of schools, especially like in Fairfax County, the teachers union said, we want to be first in the vaccination line. And then so they put them first in the vaccination line and they said, we're still not going back until the kids are vaccinated. It's like there is no approved vaccine for kids under 14. It doesn't exist. There's been no studies. You know, and some teachers union are saying, we're not even going to come back in the fall. These unions have to be broken because they are literally destroying the lives of children. So help me understand this, because honestly, I just don't get it. There are teachers in private schools who are going to school. There are teachers who are in religious parochial schools that are going to school. There's data that shows that teachers are probably safer in the school environment than they are in their community. 
when did the teachers unions become anti-student? And by the way, are they really representative? They've always been anti-student. But, wh- but why? I don't understand. These people went into teaching because they loved the job. They loved the kids. Why is there union? A lot of the unions, I don't think a lot of the unions are actually teachers anymore. It's a racket. The unions are all about unions. They're all about the power of the unions, the enrichment of the union bosses. I mean, one of the things that Act 10 did in Wisconsin that broke is that it made what really got them mad. They didn't care about a lot of the other stuff in the bill. But one thing that really got them mad is that they could no longer require teachers. that They made union dues voluntary instead of mandatory, right? Because it's all about the money. They would have given up anything as long as they could mandate the teachers had to pay their union dues, because it's all about the unions and getting money. And I think a lot of these unions see this as a potential cash cap. You know, oh, they want us. Well, what can we get for it? We've already got $119 billion for state and local schools. Let's get another $129 billion and let's use COVID as a pretext to uh, get as much money as we can. It's a racket. And if you want to see how bad this is, just imagine, you know, I was just shocked by what the governor said about how one group, school district, the teachers voted not to be considered essential workers. They don't consider themselves essential. I mean, can you imagine if millions of grocery clerks decided we're not showing up for in-person sales and we're unionized and so we're not going to show up and sorry, America, you're going to start. Uh, we're not working. All these grocery clerks showed up for work. And now you've got teachers who have not been showing up for work cutting in the line ahead of the grocery clerks who did to get the vaccine and then still saying they won't they won't teach. I mean, what is wrong with these people? I am as flummoxed as the average parent, and I have no desire to see teachers sick. You know, one of the numbers that stuck out at me was Sweden, you know, did this sort of bizarre, bold experiment that really didn't pay off uh, in handling COVID. They had no shutdowns, no limitations, just a couple of restrictions on people, and their numbers went sky high. Their fatality rate went up extraordinarily high in comparison to their neighbors. Who was not impacted? So this is a statistic. Opening schools had very little impact in Sweden, which never shut its schools. Teachers have the same fatality rate as IT technicians who worked the entire time from home. But also, you know, for those of us who sit all day on Zoom in, you know, a small room and are miserable staring at our computers, why are teachers willing to to continue doing that? I think it's for those who actually care about teaching, it's harder on them. For those who care about students, the data is decisive. It sounds to me like this is a, a ripe time for a revolt against the teachers unions. You know, Joe Biden yeah. could have a sister soldier moment here and do the right thing. Yeah. And I'm sure there are millions of teachers in these public schools who want nothing more than to get back into schools, but the teachers unions won't. And the school districts that are beholden to them won't let them do it. You know, I mean, it's not like they have choice either. Right. You know, it's not like a, if you're a, if you're a teacher in Fairfax County and the teachers union says we're not going to school unless X, you know, then you can say, well, I'll teach in person. Doesn't work that way. You know, so I, I think we need to do two things. I mean, we need to break the teachers unions and we, we need to do it by one, removing their collective bargaining power and two, by putting the money in the hands of parents. Right. Because they only get away with this stuff because parents have to send their kids to the schools in their districts and they don't have any control of the money. If parents had the control of the money and the schools were behaving, they would have to respond like a, like a business does, right? Which is to service the clients. Unfortunately for these schools, the clients are not the kids. The clients are not the parents. The clients are the teachers unions. 
And that's who they service. And the only way you break that is by putting the money in the hands of the parents and by breaking the power of the teachers unions for collective bargaining, or else none of this is going to get solved. Well, this is the note on which I wish to go out, which is do not tell me that you care about the underprivileged, about minorities, about equity, about diversity, or about the rights of the least privileged among us if you don't care about these kids going to school. If you don't care about them going to school, I don't give a damn what you say. You don't care about them at all. And save me your rhetoric about inequality. Yeah, bingo. All right, well, we've ended on a note of beautiful agreement here. Folks, (laughs) don't forget, share the podcast with your friends, subscribe, review. I don't know what else you can do. Review it again. And remember, we've turned things around. Send me your complaints. Send all your flattery to Mark. Mark, did you get a ton of emails last week with uh, all that flattery? Constant, constant, constant stream and complaints about you. Oh, thank you. Forward those to me, please. And uh, and tech, as always, to our producer, Alexa. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. Our producer is Alexa Santry. And a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Uh